Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, let's get to it. Romans chapter 4, verse 18 is where we left off last week. And we, if you're visiting with us, have been marching through steadily the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome that we know of as Romans. You can find it in the New Testament. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. Keep that Bible if you don't own one. That's our gift to you. I think you will be really help to follow along. And we're going to look at three verses today that um, have long fascinated me. In particular, several years ago when we went through our study through Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we're going to see a connection between what's here in Romans 4 verses 18 through 21 in the life of Abraham and his life in the early chapters of Genesis that I just think is really, really beautiful and important for us to see. Up to this point, Paul has been saying that all people, whether they are religious or non-religious, Jew or Gentile, are all by nature sinful and separated from God and completely dependent on His grace. But God in His kindness has put forward His Son, Jesus, fully God, fully man, God the Son, to be a living human being, to lay down his perfect life, to absorb God's punishment for our sin, and rise again in victory over it, so that all those that would, by faith, that's given to them by God's grace, put their faith in Jesus, would be made right with God. So the point up to Romans, point of Romans up to this point is that we are saved by faith not our works or our righteousness, but by Christ's work on the cross. And in Romans 4, he's using Abraham as an example of this type of faith. So the question now today is, if we need faith like Abraham's to be right with God, what type of faith does Abraham have? And I think our text helps us to answer that question. So let me look. Let me read verses 18 through 21, and then we'll, we'll work back through it. Romans 4, verse 18 through 21. Speaking of Abraham now. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text and see Christ and be encouraged. Father, Thank you for this beautiful passage, this incredible passage, this important passage about the nature of Abraham's faith that we need as a gift from you in order to be made right. I pray that your people, believers, Christians in this room would be stirred and convicted and encouraged and exhorted in the faith this morning. And I pray that 
for my friends that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Jesus, that you, by your grace, would give them the gift of faith so that they can trust and see in Jesus. And we pray it all in the name of Christ, trusting, believing in the work of your Holy Spirit among us. We pray it in his name. Amen. I want us to look at, from this text, I see four aspects or characteristics of true faith. And so we're just going to work back through this text very, very quickly. The first aspect or characteristic of true faith or the faith of Abraham is this. Number one, that true faith is not blind. It's not blind. Now, sometimes Christians are criticized uh, for having a kind of irrational outlook on life and a kind of blind faith. And maybe you have met Christians that sort of fit into this stereotype. Uh, Ironically enough, uh, many times Christians that have this type of faith, in quotations, come from a stream of the church that is ironically, I think, called the Word of Faith movement. And it's, it's a type of stream or brand of Christianity that I think is very defective and very faulty that believes that uh, faith is something that you confess, that you sort of generate on your own, and that any consideration of reality or any consideration of the facts, for example, let's just say maybe somebody's sick. Have you ever had a friend like this, and they, maybe they're in this sort of stream of the church, and you know they're coughing, they have a 103-degree fever, and they got a runny nose, and you know they're coughing up along, and you say, oh, brother or sister, do you have the flu? And they, they say, oh, I don't believe, I don't receive that. <laughs> and you're like, well, okay, but stay away from me because you got the flu, <laughs> right? And they put, I think, an unbiblical emphasis on faith as something that we bring to the table, and it seems to be, let's be honest, and I want to be charitable here, but it's, it's just, quite frankly, it's detached from reality. But actually, if we look at this text, uh, I think that it's biblical faith. The faith of Abraham is exactly the opposite. Faith is not creating new circumstances by the power of our positive confessions. That's wrong. Faith is not refusing to accept reality. Faith is believing in God that despite the circumstances in the reality, he can be trusted. It is trusting that God is a good father who knows how to watch over his children and knows how to fulfill his promises to them even if we don't understand the layers of all of those promises and how God will work ultimately his purposes out in our lives. Hebrews 11.1, 1, this famous chapter on faith, starts with this verse. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the things not seen that I think Hebrews 11.1 1 is referring to is often God's mysterious purposes that he ultimately works for our good. And we, friends, we never see that in the moment. If we could see all of God's purposes in the moment, it really wouldn't be faith. It would be sight. And God, for his glory, according to his wise counsel, has created everything that is and has created mankind to be a display of his glory and has, has 
made this system, this reality of faith to be the means by which he actually brings glory to himself as his people in an uncertain world, grope through the darkness in faith towards him so that he might receive glory. So let's look at the text, at what Abraham's faith was like. Abraham was not blindly believing God and denying reality. Abraham had a flu and he knew it, right? In fact, that's what it says in verse 19. It says that he did not weaken in his faith. In fact, one verse up before that in verse 18, it says in hope he believed against hope. We all know what that phrase means, right? That the odds were stacked against him. And what is he believing? That what God had promised him years before, that somehow he would be the father of many nations and that God would create a nation through him, that through these people, this family, that would ultimately bless the world, that we now then realize in the New Testament ultimately is the people of God and through this family in the Old Testament comes Christ the Messiah that all those things that Abraham could just see in shadow form even in the reality of his circumstances Abraham did not stick his head in the sand but he believed God it says in verse 19 that he considered he considered his own body which was as good as dead. He's a hundred years old, and his wife was in her 90s, and her womb was barren. But yet, Abraham, not denying all these things, considered. That word, a fuller definition of the word considered, is to come to a clear and definite understanding of something, to understand completely, to perceive clearly. Abraham was in no denial of the situation that there was absolutely no way through human effort that God's promise could be fulfilled. But yet, he, he believed. He, he believed. He trusted in God, even though everything around him seemed to point in the other direction. Just very briefly, how, how might this apply to us today? Maybe, maybe you are a, a Christian who grew up in a church culture a little bit maybe similar to what I just briefly described there earlier about a kind of church culture that called for a kind of blind faith, a kind of confession-oriented church culture. And by confession, I don't mean a good, solid doctrinal confession of faith. I mean kind of putting all the weight on what you say. And strangely enough, those church cultures can kind of exist in different extremes. They can exist in really kind of word of faith, sort of prosperity gospel. Like you, you have to believe these things and not doubt them. And it can also exist in strange sort of legalistic fundamentalist cultures that would really disagree a lot with that word of faith movement. But any doubt, any expression, or any wondering of what the Bible really says in a situation is sort of, is sort of you know, looked down upon as a kind of lack of faith. And there's just no opportunity to wrestle with God's word and grow in grace. And so you kind of are trapped. Maybe you've grown up sort of in a, in a sort of straitjacket spiritually, and you're wondering, well, I, you know, I don't know. I, I have some questions. And as a result you are very easily discouraged and dismayed. And maybe, maybe you're hanging by a thread because subconsciously you have perceived Christianity and true Christianity 
as a place that is intellectually kind of dishonest. Maybe that's you. I think you need to take this in, that the faith of Abraham was not a denial of the circumstances. It was a faith in a miraculous God who is not bound by empirical evidence. That's the good news of the gospel. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, Welsh preacher in London in the mid-1900s, said uh, on a sermon on this text about faith. He said, there are some people who think that because they are assailed by doubts, they have no faith. That is a complete fallacy. To be entirely free from doubts does not always signify faith. It may mean presumption or the kind of psychological state that the cults often produce. I love that. You're like, man, some of you guys, that's how culture started, people that don't question anything. There is a sense in which we can define faith as that which enables a man to overcome his doubts and to answer them. This is a most important aspect of faith. It considers the difficulties, but it overcomes them. So Abraham's faith was not a blind faith. It was a faith very in touch with the desperation and the futility of his situation. But he placed his faith in God. And then just one more little point of application before we move on to the next truth is maybe, maybe you're not a Christian And like I mentioned before, your objection to Christianity, maybe the thing that's holding you back, is that you have this notion, this stereotype that Christians check their brains at the door and just go along with the tenets of the faith blindly, leaning on them as a sort of emotional crutch. And maybe that might be partially true in some of the church cultures that you've been around. But, but, but I would just plead with you, although there may be some people like that, that is not the type of faith that the Bible calls for. If you are going to reject Christianity, at least reject the real thing. Don't reject a Christianity based on, don't reject Christianity based on some faulty version of it. Biblical faith is very in touch with reality. It is not a blind faith. The second thing that I see, and this is the, 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 the portion of this text that just, just kind of has, has gripped me and fascinated me for several years ever since we went through Romans, and it's this point number two about true faith, is that it grows over time. Now let's spend a little time thinking deeply about about what verse 20 says about the nature of Abraham's faith. So let me read verse 20 again. It says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Okay, so there's two things that I think we need to pause and look at before we, we move on. Two things that I want us to notice about this verse. First, Look at the second half of, of verse 20. It says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. The, the phrase grew strong, I take it to mean that his faith increased over time. That as he built up experiences of seeing God's faithfulness, his faith was strengthened. This means that by necessity, his Faith initially was not fully formed. It was not by any means perfected. 
So we see just there that faith grows over time. But this is the second thing that I want us to see that just has gripped me for several years again since we went through Genesis. At the beginning of verse 20, it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. All right. Now, we may be tempted to ask at this point, if you are at all familiar with the story of Abraham's life in Genesis, we may be tempted to ask, has Paul, who wrote Romans, has Paul read Genesis? (laughs) Uh, Paul, have you read that time right after God spoke to Abraham and said, you're man, I'm going to make a nation through you and your wife. Right after that, in the same chapter in Genesis 12, he gets scurred and lies about Sarah being his wife in front of an Egyptian king just to save his own hide. And he says, no, no, she's my sister, which was kind of like a true, she was sort of half-sister, but anyway, it's just sort of, he was lying because he was scurred. He not only lies once, he lies twice in Genesis 20 after God had showed up to him several more times. He lies again to this king named Abimelech who he feels threatened by again after God has done all these things. And he lies again and says, no, no, no. I I mean, yeah, she's just my sister. Yeah. To save his own hide because she was a beautiful woman and he thought that if they knew that he was her husband, they would kill him to take her for themselves. What about Genesis 16, where after years of infertility, his wife Sarah concocts a scheme to, through their human means, fulfill God's promise, and she brings him her servant Hagar and says, why don't you have a child with Hagar, my servant, since I am barren? completely going against what God had promised him in the previous chapters. And Abraham says, all right. (laughs) What about, just to give you, I don't want to just summarize the biblical text. Let me just read to you Genesis chapter 17, verse 15 through 21. What about that time Abraham laughed at God? In seeming doubt, listen to Genesis 17, God coming again to promise him, no, even after Abraham has doubted God and circumvented his promise and had a child through Hagar and God is still gracious. And in Genesis 17, verse 15, it says, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Verse 17, listen to this. Let's read verse 17 in light of verse 20 from Romans 4, where it says that no unbelief made him waver, knowing that he's, also, he's already lied, and he's already given in to Sarah's man-centered scheme in chapter 16 about coming up with a baby another way. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face, and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael, the child that he had with Hagar, the servant, through human devising and means, oh, that Ishmael might live for you. So he's saying, oh, okay, God, but 
But what about, yeah, that just seems so improbable, but I got this other kid over here through Hagar. Can, can, we, can, we, can we go this route? Romans 4, 20 in the back of your mind. No unbelief made him waver, right? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after them. So, so, so what, what are we to make of this? Well, uh, I, I think Paul read Genesis. I think Paul knew Genesis backwards and forwards. And I also think that the same Holy Spirit that inspired Moses to write Genesis is the same Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to write Romans and that the Bible does not contradict itself. And so what are we to make of this? I mean, all of his words prove true, Proverbs 30 verse 5 says. So what is Paul saying about Abraham's faith in Romans 4.20 in light of the Genesis account that no unbelief made him waver? I think that Paul is not saying that Abraham never had any doubts. We see that from the account of Genesis. What I think he is saying, that despite the ups and downs, ultimately he endured in his faith. He persevered. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the gracious disposition of God, is describing Abraham's life and his faith in the whole. He is not saying that Abraham's faith was perfect, because clearly it wasn't, but rather that over time it grew strong and made it to the end. I think Paul is giving us a picture of God's perspective on Abraham's faith. It is the gracious perspective of a benevolent, gracious father. Oh, friends. <laughs> think about anybody that's ever raised a child that has achieved anything. Think, think about if you are a dad that has given away your daughter, or if you are a parent that has seen your child be married, or graduate from college, or do something maybe in the military, when they are being honored in the wedding ceremony, or on that graduation day, at the end of that, you don't come up to them and say, yeah, but when you were a seven-year-old, you were a real handful, you little stinker. <laughs> Or even if they rebelled as a teenager, you don't, you don't bring it up. You, you look upon the whole of their life. And because you are a gracious father or mother, you with grace and beautiful mercy view that child's life in the grand providence of God. And you say, this child hung in there, did not waver. There were many opportunities to go astray, but they made it, they made it, they made it. Friends, this should be an encouragement to those of us who struggle in our faith, who struggle with our sin, who wonder if God is up there with his arms folded, ready to cast us off. Abraham's faith is the type of faith that saved, and it's the type of faith that weebled and wobbled, but made it to the end. That's the type of faith that God gives us. 
What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he is gracious towards his children. He is not like some mean boarding school professor peering over his glasses as he evaluates your grades on the last day of class. Stephen read it for us at the beginning of service in Psalm 130. If he should mark our iniquities, who could stand? Abraham's faith that saved him was not a faith that was perfect. It was a faith that God gave him that over the course of time made it to the end. It's a persevering faith. It's not a perfect faith. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says that a slender wire... A slender wire can receive a great message. Friends, the beauty of the gospel, one of the great truths of the good news of the gospel is not that we are saved by the strength of our faith, but we're saved by the strength of the object of our faith, which is Jesus. Do you see the the beautiful truth there? If we were saved by the strength of our faith, then when is enough faith enough? That's the air of the prosperity gospel. And yes, we need faith and we want our faith to grow. And there are many things that we should do in order for our faith to grow. But the good news of the gospel is that God has a gracious disposition towards his children. And friends, if you're in Christ, he has a gracious disposition towards you. How does this apply to us? Maybe for a variety of reasons that are no doubt complex, and I'm not minimizing that, you operate in this perpetual mode of feeling like God is disappointed in you. Dear friend, take in the beauty of God's gracious disposition towards you if you are in Christ. Take in his gracious disposition towards you. You're stumbling and you're bumbling like he did Abraham so that he would inspire the Apostle Paul in light of all of the events of Abraham's life that he would say of Abraham, no unbelief made him waver, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. The third thing that we need to say about this faith is that it is, it is God-centered. Look again at verse 20 and 21. We just read it, verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning, just notice how many times God is the object here, concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to to God, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. The point is that biblical faith, faith that actually saves, Abraham's faith is not general, ambiguous, religious faith. It's not a a kind of hazy faith in the man upstairs, is like athletes say at the post-game interview. Makes me want to throw the remote control at the TV. And then all of a sudden, everybody claps about that. And then we, you know, prop this athlete up as an example of Christianity because he, I mean, come on. The, the world is not offended by a sort of nebulous, ambiguous faith in God. But the moment that that faith centers on the person and work of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who has made the Father known, it becomes exclusive and fi- definite. Abraham was specifically trusting in specific things that God had told him. And in the Old Testament, Abraham's faith in specific promises that God had given to him is a kind of shadow of the New Testament faith that we have, a specific 
faith, not generally that there's a God up there who eventually through some system of karma will make everything work out okay, but that God has revealed himself in the face of his son Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, and has put Jesus on the cross to bear the wrath and penalty for sin so that all who don't just have a kind of deistic worldview, but who trust in Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, will be right with him. It's a specific God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered truth. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. Friends, the shadow form of Abraham's faith in the Old Testament is the substance and reality of Christ. It's our faith is not just in a general moral relativism, but it's in Christ who took God's punishment for us so that we could be made right with him. And our faith and our trust is in, in him, not in ourselves. And then finally, this faith produces obedience. It produces obedience. Look, look at what verse 21 says again. It says that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. And then if we read the rest of Abraham's life in Genesis, specifically in Genesis 22 when he is willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, we see that this faith didn't, didn't just stay in Abraham's heart and mind, it actually produced in him some measure of obedience. And, and this is Paul's whole purpose in Romans. Paul begins Romans, begins a letter to, to the church in Rome in chapter 1 by saying that the whole reason that he has been given this gift of apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith. And then he ends the letter in Romans 16 verse 26 by saying that the preaching of the gospel has the goal of bringing out the, about the obedience of faith. In other words, faith that does not result in some measure of obedience is not true faith. That's the whole point, I think, of James, in particular James 2, that says that faith without works is dead. Abraham's faith, the faith that we need, is a faith that works, that produces some spiritual fruit in us. The Reformers put it this way in the 1500s in the Protestant Reformation. They said, we, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is not alone. In other words, true saving faith will bring about some measure of obedience in the life of a Christian. And here's my burden. Here's my burden for my own soul and for us, is that we are a church that loves the glory and the good news of the free grace of the gospel. And we put a lot of emphasis on how grace is free, and it comes from God as a gift, and faith is a gift, and there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And that is glorious and true, and we should never stop trumpeting that truth. But if that's all we have to say about the Christian life, then we can unwittingly fall into a kind of casual, a sort of cheap grace, a cheap faith that doesn't actually bear any fruit in the life of a believer, which is not the intent 
of God's salvation in the life of an individual, right? So we have these two ditches that we're always apt to fall off into. One is legalism, and I think we all sort of have a radar for legalism, right? Legalism says that, no, it's, it's, it's sort of your righteousness that pleases God. And so that, that whole air of legalism is missing the freeness of the grace of the gospel, It's missing the message of Romans, that we are saved not by our works, but by the grace that God gives in Christ and the gift of faith that we don't produce our own on our own, but that God gives us. So we we are very aware in our culture of legalism, and we want to say, no, no, it's you can't put that on me. I'm not saved by those things, I'm saved by what Christ has done. But we're also prone to fall off on the other side of the ditch. And that, here's a, here's a big word, we've mentioned it before. It's called antinomianism or against the law. It's this wrong view of viewing the Christian life in the Bible as if there are no commands and imperatives for the Christian once they are trusting in Christ. And, and, and I think probably we as a church are more vulnerable to this. That we would put so much emphasis on the fact that I'm not saved by my works and it's all God's grace that we just kind of stay in this pitiful, woe's me, there's nothing I can do. But we see that Abraham, when he had faith in God, it produced something in him. Then listen to what Hebrews 11:8 says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance and he went out, not knowing where he was going. He walked by faith. Part of the Christian life is not just receiving the grace of the gospel, but going out in obedience to God. And oh, oh, that 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 would be our understanding of grace. Faith, true biblical faith of Abraham is not blind. It grows. It's God's gracious disposition towards us. It's centered on God, and it produces obedience in us. Let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we consider this truth in this text, there are innumerable situations in the lives of the people in this room where you would make application and where this truth would illuminate our deficient understanding of the Christian life and faith. Lord, for the person who feels weak, encourage them. Let them know that your gracious, fatherly disposition to them is one of kindness and love and grace. To the Christian who's lazy and who is resting in complacency and maybe even sin, Lord, convict them and let them see that True faith will produce going out in obedience away from that thing. And for my friends that are in this room that are not trusting in Jesus, Lord, help them see the true meaning of the gospel so that whatever they are reacting to, they're reacting to the actual truth, not some stereotype of it. 
May you, by your kindness, give them the gift of faith so that they can turn away from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Jesus. Lord, would you do this all for the glory of your name and for the good of our souls and for the salvation of any in this room who do not trust in Jesus. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a few songs of response. Friends, now would be the time for you to pray, for you to repent. If you need prayer for anything, come and find one of us. We'll be up front, myself, the other pastors, elders, will be ready to pray for you. If you have doubted Christianity, you have any questions, don't leave this room before, don't leave this building before you speak to somebody that you know to be a Christian. At the end of service, I'll be out at the table with those books, Who is Jesus? And I'd love to give you one if you're new to the faith or you're not trusting in Jesus or have questions. Let's respond now as the worship team leads us to worship God together.